following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. You know, Pastor Steve last week shared about his favorite rock band growing up, so I feel kind of like I have permission now to share about mine as well. <laughs> Millie Vanilli was an R&B duo made up of Fab Morven, who was French, and Rob Pilatus, who was German. And uh, you can cue to the next slide. Let's set the mood here a little bit. So, Millie Vanilli's Girl You Know It's True was the first album that I ever purchased in my life. And uh, I remember clearly as a young teenager walking into Target and dropping $10 on a cassette tape. Some of you may not know what that is. <laughs> and I loved every single song on this album. Girl You Know It's True, which is playing right now. Blame It on the Grain. Girl I'm Gonna Miss You. Baby Don't Forget My Number. From the moment I first heard each of these songs, they became instant classics in my mind. And you can cut the music now. <laughs> I, I wasn't the only one who felt this way. You know, Millie's Vanilli's album went platinum six times, and in 1990, they won the Grammy Award for Best New Artist. But not long after this, people started getting suspicious because, you know, they would get interviewed and they'd have these thick European accents, you know. But when you sing, they sound like they're from Motown, right? <laughs> And uh, rumors began circulating that they were lip-syncers, and on one of their live performances, the CD skipped, and, you know, they were kind of exposed. And not long after that, a writer confirmed these rumors, and we, you know, the whole world found out that not a single note on their entire album was actually sung by them. So, Girl You Know It's True became, Boy, We Know It's a Lie. (laughs) And I was devastated. You know, I know Pastor Steve was upset when Steve Perry left Journey, but this was like a whole other level of betrayal. <laughs> I was like, these guys didn't even sing the songs. And uh, it's actually a pretty tragic story. You know, after getting exposed, Rob Pilatus, who's uh, the one on the left there, he spiraled into depression, and he struggled. He got into trouble with the law, got caught uh, committing robbery. He, was, he struggled consistently with substance abuse and addiction. And not even eight years after they got exposed, uh, he was found dead at the age of 32 from a drug overdose. This is tragic. And, you know, this, this time in my life actually represented a very difficult season as well. And it wasn't just because Millie Vanilli wasn't real, but, you know, I was having some real uh, identity issues as a young teenager trying to fit into a new school. Uh, my grades were really horrible. Um, I had very few friends, and it was the first season of kind of wandering in the wilderness for me. I've shared this, I think, before, but during this time, I I grew up in a Christian home, but I really didn't know if God was real. You know, he he certainly didn't feel real to me. But right around this time uh, is when this youth pastor came into my life named Kevin Scogan. He's the one in the center there with uh, the white and gray hair. And um, this is a recent pic of him and with his six children and now his 16 grandchildren. And, you know, you can see they're, they're like an all-American family. And uh, 
you know, if you were to create the perfect youth pastor in a laboratory, I think you would have created Kevin Skogan. <laughs> you know, he was 27 years old uh, when he first came to our church. He was a six foot four inch college, former college quarterback. Beautiful wife, beautiful kids. They all had blonde hair and blue eyes. And Kevin just loved the Lord. He loved God's word. And he loved our little youth group of 10 kids or so. And he loved to just play guitar and he loved to sing. And we would sing all the time as a youth group, you know, at his house, at church. And he's actually the one who inspired me to learn how to play the guitar in high school. But what set Kevin apart was that he loved to actually put scripture to music. And he did this as a way of memorizing the Bible when he was in seminary. And he would often teach us the songs that he would arrange as a way of encouraging us to to memorize the Bible as well. And there was nothing really fancy about these songs, you know, but there was a real power in it. Because it was literally God's word. And it was verbatim, straight out of the 1984 edition of the NIV. (laughs) So um, I'm going to try something a little different this morning. I'm going to sing today's scripture reading for you. from Psalm 63, at least the first few verses from this chapter, as I learned it in my youth group days. But before I do that, I want to just set up the context of this psalm. You know, Psalm 63 is introduced in Scripture as a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And this is an actual picture um, of the wilderness of Judah. And if you go to Bible.org, it describes the Judean wilderness like this. Very few places in the Holy Land still look original. But in the wilderness of Judah, one can see what the ancients saw. Deep ravines and rocky terrain, barren grades with scant vegetation, miles and miles of desolate land, bleak, inhospitable, stark, and harsh. The wilderness of Judea has sat virtually unchanged for thousands of years. And because the wilderness of Judah remained so arid and uninviting, most people only passed through it on their way to somewhere else because nobody wanted to go there. And often only the nobodies of society actually did. The wilderness attracted those on the fringes, the outcasts, the shepherds, the fugitives, the hermits, and even fearful elders. There were really only two periods of David's life when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And the first was when he fled from Saul, who in his jealous rage was looking to kill David as a young man, as we just learned uh, through this David series. And, you know, most scholars believe that he was, David at this time was in his later teenage years. And the second time we find David in the wilderness of Judah is about 40 years later, when he's fleeing from his son Absalom who's looking to kill him and to take the throne. And the general consensus among scholars is that Psalm 63 is written on this second occasion while fleeing from his son Absalom. Now, you know, I don't want to steal um, Pastor Steve's thunder because we haven't reached this part of the David narrative yet. But at this point, David is about 60 years old. He's only actually about 10 years away from his death at the age of 70. And Incredibly, he's right back in the same place that he was as a teenager. He's hiding in these mountain caves in the Judean wilderness. And, you know, just think about that. It's just, can you imagine 
Like this was supposed to be his golden years as Israel's true anointed king. At this point, he should be sitting back on his throne, enjoying peace and prosperity, but instead, where do we find him? King David is in the desert, and he's in real distress in every way. You know, physically speaking, there is no water and very little food in this place, and his body is literally shutting down. And emotionally, his own son has betrayed him, and he's hunting him down to kill him. I mean, just imagine that. The very child to whom you gave life is now seeking to end yours. And that has to inflict an incredibly deep emotional wound. But I I want you to notice the state of David's heart in this psalm, and I want you to hear the cry of his soul in this desert place. I want to sing it for you. You know, the psalms literally means a book of songs. Song of Praises, Book of Praises. And so these verses were actually meant to be sung. And no one really knows what the melody of these, of these verses were. But we, of course, still have the lyrics. And, you know, this melody, I'm going to sing it in, was taught again by my youth pastor 30 years ago. Um, these lyrics have endured for 3,000 years. And so um, let's just listen to the heart of David through this song.
Lord, that is our prayer. That we would seek you as David sought you. And in that seeking, that we would see you and behold your power and your glory. And in seeing you, Lord, that we would experience your love, which is better than life. As we look into your word and into this, this psalm, we pray that you would help us to see the heart of David, and in seeing the heart of David, that we would open a window into your heart, Lord. We desire to see you in this place and by the power of your Spirit. So that was Psalm 63 that I learned when I was 14 years old. And um, we just sang the first few verses, but I, I want to read the entire chapter for you in the 1984 edition of the NIV, as I learned it. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied with the richest of foods. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. And they who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God's name will praise him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Amen. You know, these are not the words that are formed in times of plenty. These are words that are forged in times of want. This is the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, in dark caves, in desert climates, in solitary confinement. But I'm convinced that the wilderness is the place where David is transformed from a boy who looks after his father's sheep into a man after God's own heart. It's here in this place. And I think this is relevant to us because God's method of molding his people has really not changed much, I think, in 3,000 years. God still leads those that he loves into the wilderness. You know, the last uh, couple summer retreats we've had at our church, we 
in our schedule have carved out about one hour for this time of solitude where we just instructed everyone to sit in silence on their own and ponder upon some reflection questions. And when, you know, when we as a staff, after the retreat, review the feedback that you all give us from our retreat surveys, you know, consistently and very strong, very uniform voice, everyone finds this time to be one of the most powerful you know, times in the retreat for them. And I think deep down we know this is good for us. It's good for us to retreat. It's good for us to carve out time to be in silence regularly and in solitude. And yet we're often so resistant to do this, right? To set this in our schedule, to commit ourselves to it. And maybe you're thinking, why is this? We know it's good. We've experienced it even ourselves. And yet, why do we resist it? And I think one is there are so many competing interests in our lives. You know, we, we just announced as screenagers. This isn't just a problem among youth. This really is a problem. And I, I'll confess, you know, we have more entertainment options on this glowing rectangle here than, you know, ever, right? And it's all at our disposal. And, you know, th- this is the noise of our life today. It's loud enough to drown out God if we let it. And it's not just movies and games. It's not just Fortnite and Netflix. Technology has made us more efficient. There are apps for everything nowadays, and it's designed to make things easier and faster. But it seems like instead of removing things off of our plate, it just actually adds more things to it, right? When we find things that save us time, we just fill it with other more pointless things that waste our time, don't we? But, you know, also I think it can seem like a waste of time to sit in silence, to be in solitude. And as busy as we all are, it's, it's so counterintuitive, right, to do this, to do nothing, to say nothing, to look at nothing, to be alone in your thoughts with God. It, it flies in the face of everything in our flesh, right? But it is life. It is life for our spirit. And that is what this is. You know, this is very much a spiritual battle, I believe. When the noise and the busyness of life can distract us from hearing the voice of God, then you can be sure that the enemy will do everything within his power to ratchet up that noise. And I think we have to be cognizant of that. We have to fight against it. Because, you know, I believe there's some invaluable lessons that God desires to teach us in this place and that we must all learn. But they can only be learned in solitude and in the wilderness. And that's what makes, I think, this psalm such a treasure. The man after God's own heart, now in his old age, back in this same old cave, is revealing the heart of God to us. And he says this, O God, you are my God. This is such a remarkable statement when you think about it, you know, especially when you think about the context from which it is spoken. When everything is going wrong, when David's whole world is falling apart, when he has been chased off of his throne and forced into this desert, when God's promise of blessings and a kingdom looks like nothing but a lie, what does he say? He says, oh God, You are my God. 
I don't think anyone would have blamed David. I don't think anyone would have even noticed if David just said, Oh God, and he moved on to the next part. Earnestly I seek you. But he doesn't do that. He pauses. He says, Oh God, you are my God. Derek Kidner says this, the simplicity and the boldness of this statement, you are my God, is the secret of everything that follows. Since this relationship David is speaking of, you're my God, is the heart of the covenant. From the patriarchs to the present day, and its implications are endless. This covenant language, it flows all throughout this chapter that's speaking of this covenant relationship. And it's as if David is reminding himself in this place and he's desperately holding on to the promises of God when everything else is falling apart. And in verse 8 of this chapter, David says this, he says, My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. I, I just love that. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. You know, this word cling is the same word that is used in Genesis chapter 2 when speaking about the very first marriage covenant made in the Garden of Eden between Adam and Eve. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast or cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This sacred union bonded by a covenant between a husband and wife has always been the picture God desired for his people to understand. He said, this is, this is but a glimpse of my love for you. This is but a taste of my commitment to you. And David has not forgotten. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. And he affirms this relationship with God and God's relationship with him, one that is not based on his faithfulness to God, but to God's covenant faithfulness to him. And this is why, despite the current circumstances, David could say, Oh God, you are my God. And then he follows with this. He says, Earnestly, I seek you. But why is David seeking so earnestly a God that he just declared is already his. It seems a little bit contradictory, doesn't it? It's not. It's not contradictory at all. It's actually very honest. David knows in his heart what is true, that God is God. God is his God. But God at this moment doesn't feel so real right now. God doesn't seem so near in this place. And David is in distress, and he knows it. And his body and his soul are in disagreement with his heart right now. And so he cries out, earnestly, I seek you. And he says, my soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. And I think this is one of the first lessons from David that we can learn from the wilderness. There's many lessons. I'm going to give you three but the first is this, I have, I have a soul, David knew this, and that soul is longing for God. 
We all have souls. And all of our souls, whether we recognize it or not, are longing for God. David's physical thirst and emotional distress has only awakened within him a realization of a much deeper spiritual need that only God can fill. And this is so important because so many of us will go our entire lives identifying and diligently caring for all of the needs of our body and yet we totally neglect our souls. And we go to the gym, we do yoga, we lift weights, we run 10Ks, we read labels, we buy organic, we get sick, we go right to the doctor. We are very intentional about caring for our bodies every day. But how mindful are we about caring for our souls? We know when our body is longing for something, right? But we're often oblivious to the needs of our soul. But David is not. He's aware. He has a soul. And that soul is desperately thirsty. But how do you quench a thirsty soul? You know, to build a healthy body, exercise and being active is so important, right? You need to regularly work the muscles in your body to build and maintain strength. But to build a healthy soul, I think the opposite is actually true. A large part of that is just, you need to do nothing. You need to be quiet enough to allow God's voice to speak into it, your soul. You need to be still enough to let the voice of your own soul express itself. And the Psalms models us, models this for us. All throughout Psalm 43, 5, the psalmist asks himself, Why so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? The Psalms is teaching us we need to care for our souls. We need to listen to our souls, just like we listen to our bodies. Because we all have souls, and our souls are longing for God. And David says this, My soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you. Where in a dry and weary land where there is no water, Here's a hard truth. We don't long for God when things are going well, right? We seek Him when things are going bad. And we earnestly seek Him when things are going really bad, right? And it often takes some pretty horrible circumstances, like finding yourselves in a dry and weary land where there is no water to get us to that point where we can express the same kind of pure and primal Longing for God that David expresses here. I think that's the other lesson. Second lesson that God wants to teach us in this wilderness, and he taught David so well, that God will draw us or draw me to himself. And how does he do that? By bringing me to the end of myself. God will draw me to himself by bringing me to the end of myself. And if we're honest about that, if we really believe that, then being sent into a dry and weary land is actually a mercy of God, isn't it? Because being in this place compels us to seek God, to earnestly seek Him. You know, uh, years ago, 
Sprite had this marketing campaign where they were trying to sell more Sprite. And they were telling people to obey your thirst. (laughs) Remember that? Obey your thirst. And, you know, basically it's just the whole campaign is just your body's telling you you're thirsty. Just listen to it. Just obey it. And I think in some ways that is what God is just calling us to do. It's so simple. He's created a thirst within us. A thirst that only he can quench so that we might seek him. And he's calling us to listen not just to our bodies, but to hear the cry of our soul. To obey your thirst. You know, the prophet Jeremiah says, my, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. But David, he does not commit this sin. Though he is at the end of himself, He turns to God in this desert place and here is where the psalm shifts, right? And hope enters in. And he says here, in a dry and weary land where there is no water, what? I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. I've seen you. I've beheld you. You know, many commentators believe David is just kind of getting nostalgic out in the wilderness and he's remembering the glory days of worshiping back in Jerusalem, perhaps with the Ark of the Covenant that he brought back. But I think there's more to this than that. You know, the ESV, which is a more literal translation, says this, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. And a lot of English translation, they they leave out that little word, so. And just like the NIV that I read. And I think this is actually unfortunate. Because when you leave that little word out, I think you miss something important that David is trying to express. This word, so, is a conjunctive adverb, which can also be translated as therefore. Right? It's expressing a consequence. It's like saying, it was a clear night. So, so, we could see lots of stars. The first clause brings about a direct result in the second one, right? It was a clear night, so we could see lots of stars. And the ESV reads like this. It says, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and your glory. And this is so meaningful because that little two-letter word, so, means David's not just living in the past. He's saying, being in this barren land, thirsting desperately for you, has led me to seeing you, has led me into your presence, has led me to beholding your power and your glory. I would not have seen you in this way had I not first experienced what I did. A thirsting in my soul. A longing in my body. And God will often do that, won't he? He will bring other forms of distress into our lives, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional. 
And he will awaken us to a deeper spiritual need. And it's not because he's forgotten us. It's because he loves us. It's like when we feel the sensation of physical pain, we know this is our body's way of telling us that something is wrong. Something needs to be addressed. Deuteronomy 8.3 says, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna. Why? To teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You know, this verse is from Moses' sermon to the Israelites after wandering for 40 years in the wilderness, some of that wilderness being the Judean wilderness. And just before they enter into the promised land, God is telling his people that he's led them to the wilderness for a purpose, not just as a consequence of their sin. He's redeemed it by allowing them to experience great physical hunger so that they might be awakened to a hunger that is far more important, far more profound, and that is their spiritual hunger, a hunger of the soul that can only be satisfied by God himself. And then David says this, For I have seen you in the sanctuary, beheld your power and your glory, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. You know, it shouldn't surprise us that immediately after David beholds the glory and the power of God, he speaks of God's love. I see you, God. I see you in this place. I see you in all of your power and in all of your glory. And I'm overwhelmed by your love. So overwhelmed that my only response can be worship to you. My, my lips will glorify you. The same cracked and dry lips that are longing for water are declaring his praises now. And that brings us to our third and final lesson from the wilderness. Life is hard. I think everyone in this room can attest to this, right? And the longer you live, the more you know life is hard, but God's love is better than life. The love of God is better than life. When we see God for who he truly is, we will discover a love that is better than life. And the wilderness will become a place of worship. And as I shared earlier, this is David's second journey through the wilderness. The first time, as I said, is when he fled from King Saul as a teenager, and now he's about 60 years old. And he's fleeing from his son, Absalom. And it makes you wonder, what did, what did David still need to learn that God would bring him back again to this place? Now, Brennan Manning, in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, one of my favorite books, he writes this, and this is a long quote, but stay with me. It really spoke to me. Many people... Between the ages of 30 and 60, whatever their statue in, stature in the community 
and whatever their personal achievements undergo what can truly be called a second journey. A man can have piled up an impressive portfolio of dollars and honors, get his name in who's who, and then wake up one morning asking, is it all worth it? Competent teachers and nurses and clergy can reach the top only to discover that the job no longer fascinates. There's nowhere higher to go. They find themselves terrified of stagnation and asking, should I switch careers? Would returning to school help? Gail Sheehy's second journey began at 35 when she was covering a story in Northern Ireland. She was standing next to a young man when a bullet blew off his face. And on that bloody Sunday in Londonderry, she felt herself confronted with death and with what she called the arithmetic of life. And she suddenly realized, no one is with me. No one keeps me safe. There is no one who won't ever leave me alone. Bloody Sunday threw Gail Sheehy off balance and flung at her a barrage of painful questions about her ultimate purpose and values. It need not be a bullet that initiates a second journey. A 35-year-old wife learns of her husband's infidelity. A 40-year-old company director finds that making money suddenly seems absurd. A 45-year-old journalist gets smashed up in a car accident. However it happens, such people feel confused and even lost. They can no longer keep life in working order. They are dragged away from chosen and cherished patterns to face strange crises. This is their second journey. For the Christian, the second journey is often accompanied by a second call from the Lord Jesus. The second call invites us to serious reflection on the nature and the quality of our faith in the gospel of grace, our hope in the now and not yet, and our love for God and for people. The second call is a summons to a deeper, more mature commitment of faith where the naivete, the first fervor, and untested idealism of the morning and the first commitment have been seasoned with pain, rejection, failure, loneliness, and self-knowledge. The second call asks, do you really accept the message that God is head over heels in love with you? I believe that this second question is at the core of our ability to mature and to grow spiritually. If in our hearts we really don't believe that God loves us as we are, if we are still tainted by the lie that we can do something to make God love us more, then we are rejecting the message of the cross. You know, I think I've shared this a couple of times before, but um, when my wife, Kim, uh, came out of cancer six years ago, I spiraled into this season of depression and um, anxiety. And to this day, I, I, I can't really explain why. <laughs> you know, um, she was in remission. She just entered into remission. I had taken eight months off of work and, you know, you would think at this point I would be rejoicing. 
Um, but it was so hard to go back to work. Everything just seemed so trivial and pointless to me. And it got so bad that literally I could not get out of bed and go to work. And I was on disability. And God in this season was forcing me into a season of silence and solitude. And it lasted for about six months. And it was, it was an incredibly dry, it was a weary land. And everything that this psalm expresses, I felt. My soul was just desperately thirsty. My body was literally breaking down. And I felt like God was not real and God was not near. And this was my second journey. And all the questions about my faith, my identity, what I believed about God, my hope in Christ, everything that I thought that I had settled when I was much younger, all those questions were back on the table. And I remember laying prostrate on my floor, you know, right by my bed, just screaming at the top of my lungs. Where are you, God? So much that I would lose my voice. And I remember in this season, you know, um, I would spend all day in in bed by myself. Nobody wanted to be around me. No one in my family, I was, I was such a mess. And so literally, I was just laying in bed all day. And I remember one day, uh, it was so quiet in the house, and, but I knew Kim was in the house. And I was wandering each room looking for her, and I opened the door in our closet, and it was dark, and she was on the floor, and she was just weeping. And you know, I felt so horrible because I, I, I knew why she was weeping. I, it was because of me. She you know, felt like no hope um, that I was going to come out of this place. And, you know, when you see your, your wife in that place and you, and you feel like she's there because of you, it's... Um, very humbling but um, I felt helpless because I I didn't know how to get better and um, I was my soul was thirsting and there was no water You know, uh, my wife often tells people that walking through that season of depression with me was far worse than going through chemotherapy. (laughs) She told somebody that a couple days ago. I was like, can you stop saying that? (laughs) Can you stop telling people that? It's so embarrassing. So I'm just going to tell all of you guys. (laughs) I beat her to the punch. And she went through some pretty intense chemotherapy. But looking back, I'm so thankful for that time. I don't think I'd be a pastor here today if God had not broken me in that way. I don't think I would appreciate the gospel of grace as much as I do if I didn't 
walk through that wilderness. I don't think I'd have anywhere near as much empathy, and I'm, I'm still growing in that area as I do today, if God had not crushed me in that place. But this psalm really resonates with me because now I can say, like David, my lips will glorify you. And I'm telling you this because I want to glorify God. And I'll praise you as long as I live. I'm not just going to offer up my lips now. I'm going to do it all the days of my life. That's what his love will do for you. I'm going to close with this last quote from another favorite book of mine by Gene Edwards. It's called A Tale of Three Kings and it's a study in brokenness. And he says this in one of his chapters. This chapter I think is worth the price of the book. He says, Caves are not the ideal place for morale building. There's a certain sameness to them all. No matter how many you have lived in, dark, wet, cold, stale. A cave becomes even worse when you are its sole inhabitant. And in the distance, you can hear the dogs baying. But sometimes when the dogs and the hunters are not near, the hunted sang. He started low, then he lifted his voice, And he sang the song the little lamb had taught him. The cavern walls echoed each note just as the mountains had once done. And the music rolled down into the deep cavern darkness that soon became an echoing choir singing back to him. He had less now than when he was a shepherd, for now he had no lyre, no son, not even the company of sheep. The memories of the court had faded David's greatest ambition now reached no higher than a shepherd's staff. Everything was being crushed out of him. He sang a great deal and matched each note with a tear. And he says, closes with this, How strange is it not what suffering begets? There in those caves, drowned in the sorrow of his song and in the song of his sorrow, David became the greatest hymn writer and the greatest comforter of broken hearts this world shall ever Amen. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Those are such redemptive words, aren't they? God had never forgotten David, even in the darkest caves of the Judean wilderness. And in David's brokenness, in David's crushing, David 
became the greatest comforter for broken hearts this world shall ever know. I think some of us are in that place right now, in the same place David found himself in the wilderness, and it is a dry and weary land, and there's no water. And you are in distress. You're in a dark cave. You're in a desert place. And it seems like God has forgotten you. That God has somehow failed in his promises to you. But God is reminding us in this little chapter, in the middle of Israel's hymn book to remember these lessons of the wilderness to remember what the man after God's own heart discovered about the heart of God you know Psalms 63 verse 8 says my soul clings to you my soul clings to you as we said then it says your right hand upholds me your right hand upholds me in all of our clinging in all of our strength the truth is he's holding us he has never let go in fact we sit in the palm of his right hand he's not forgotten you he has not forsaken you he is with you he is for you find that his right hand was upholding you the entire time.